This is Naked Astronomy. Each month I strip down interesting developments in the world of space. In a quest to find out what's really going on out there. I'm Greg Jackson and this fine month we're going to get all starry-eyed over our sun. Where did it come from? Where is it going? And the mission that's getting us the closest we've ever been to our star. Yaha, uh-huh. exciting stuff indeed. Before we begin, though, I'm going to apologise for getting out the podcast a day late. The reason why is kind of awesome, though. First up, I've been working on a programme about stress. Super interesting and, ironically, rather stressful. You should definitely check it out. Search Naked Scientist in whatever podcasting platform you're using. It'll be out on the last day of May. But also, we've been nominated for an award. Hip hip hooray. The thing is, we need you to vote for the Naked Scientists to win. So if you're really dedicated, you can actually vote every day. Please do. Uh, And this is from the 29th of May. Head to nakedscientists.com slash vote. Now, back to the programme. That night, it was a beautifully clear and warm evening. I was in my back garden, gazing up at the night sky and all those teeny tiny twinkles. If I was lucky, or unlucky, depending on how you look at it, I might have been able to count up to 3,000 of them. One, two, three, four, five... But this is just the tip of a vast cosmic iceberg. There are a hundred billion stars in the Milky Way, and then there are a further a hundred billion galaxies. Oh, she didn't star. That's supposed to be good luck. I was always told it meant a new baby was falling to Earth presumably from heaven, ready to be born. But I have heard that shooting stars represent souls that have been released from purgatory, and they're now off on their way to heaven. Of course, they're not stars or lost souls at all, just meteors burning up as they hit the Earth's atmosphere. It wasn't a meteor, though, that got me all starry-eyed, but the idea that we're all made up of stardust. Absolutely. All those elements, other than hydrogen, of which we're made, uh, have indeed been formed in the cores of uh, earlier generations of stars, thrown out into space and then incorporated into the solar system and the planet Earth when it formed. And uh, we're a result of that. That is, of course, Andrew Norton. Professor of Astrophysics Education at the Open University. I always say uh, I got interested in astronomy because when I was a child on TV, we had these great programs called Doctor Who and Star Trek. Now, I I know they're still on TV now. I know Star Trek. (laughs) I watched Captain Janeway. It's like what my childhood is filled with. Yeah. So that was it. That's what got me interested in astronomy. And and bizarrely, I've managed to make a living out of it ever since. So uh, it suits me fine. Let's boldly go to where man has been before. On this occasion, Paris in 19. where a tutor of l'école polytechnique by the name of August Comte wrote There is no conceivable means by which we shall all one day determine the chemical composition of the stars. But shortly after his death in 1957, two German physicists, one Robert Bunsen, who you may have heard of, and a Gustav Kirchhoff, proved Comte wrong. 
we don't need to go to the sun to find out what it's made of. We can we can look at the light which the sun emits. And the key to it is that different elements emit particular patterns of light, a particular spectrum of light, a particular set of wavelengths or frequencies, if you like. So hydrogen, hydrogen gas emits light at particular frequencies that we can recognise, particular colours. So when we look at the spectrum of light from the sun or indeed any other star, we can see that recognisable pattern of so-called spectral lines that really are the fingerprint of a particular element. In fact, the gas helium was not discovered on Earth. It was discovered on the sun. That's that's where the name helium comes from. The Greek word helios, I guess, is is the word for the sun. Really? So yeah. That's awesome. So so back in uh, well the nineteenth century, I guess it was. People looked at the spectrum of the sun and saw these particular lines, spectral lines that they didn't recognise as corresponding to any element known on Earth, and that 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 element was called helium. That's where it was first discovered in the spectrum of light from the sun, and and now indeed in other stars. Now you've got me thinking back to my chemistry lessons at school and I seem to remember things like copper burns blue and sodium burns yellow. I can't remember any others, <laughs> but I, is it is a bit like that? It is, essentially that. that there's a dominant colour, if you like, from particular elements, but the, it's the detailed pattern of light that uh, really is the key. So you mentioned sodium. If we look at the spectrum of light from, from sodium, when sodium is, is, is in a gaseous state, uh, we see strong lines in the yellow part of the spectrum neon has uh, strong lines in the red part of the spectrum that's you know we see that in neon signs but every element right across the periodic table of, of the elements every element will have its own particular combination of, of spectral line but there is another way actually that we can uh, tell what's in the sun and that's not by us going to the sun it's because the sun emits particles in our direction the so-called solar wind and uh you know in principle we can we can detect those particles of the solar wind out in uh, sort of orbit around the earth and we can we could in that way measure the particles directly from the sun as well so that's a nice way to confirm if you like uh what we're seeing in the spectra is physically there in terms of the the atoms blowing off the surface of the sun Hmm, that's really cool. I'm just thinking a bit like literally stardust. Someone can actually hold that. Absolutely. That's what it is. It's, it's, it is stardust. Yeah. So you <laughs> would attach this spectrometer to a telescope and voila, but sadly, I don't really have one of them. So can you tell me what is our sun made of? Just like other stars, it's pretty much three quarters hydrogen, one quarter helium and a tiny bit of everything else. Most stars are incredibly far away and we don't know a huge amount about them. But what we do know, we know because of our star, the Sun, the creator of our planet and to which we owe our existence. I always find it amazing that deep down in the core of the Sun, we can figure out the temperature is 15 million degrees. Uh, so that's, uh, that's pretty amazing, I think. Another fact about the Sun, you could fit a million planet Earths inside the Sun. Uh, it's about a million times the volume of the planet Earth. And uh, what about a third fact? Hmm. Well, I suppose a third fact would be that the Sun is about halfway through its life. It's about five billion years old and it's got about another five billion years to go. Before we get to the end, though, let's go back to the beginning when our Sun would have been nothing more than a clump of dust. My name is Brendan Owens and I'm an astronomer here at the Royal Observatory Greenwich. What are these 
beautiful pictures we're seeing right in front of us. So this is a selection from our Deep Space category from Astronomy Photographer of the Year as a selection of um, star birth and star death. There's some beautiful colours. I can see blues and yellows and red. Very, very rich. It's often one of those things that um, is kind of amazing and maybe a little disappointing for some people sometimes is that the colour that you see in a lot of the images is what we call false colour. Um, so it's been coloured in by usually what you would have is uh, the astronomers take images. They're actually grayscale. Those filters are corresponding to just particular energies from particular atoms. So iron, carbon, oxygen, just those things, and then you can choose to colour them in. Now, just to avoid confusion, we don't go all creative and colour them in whatever we want. We try and stick to a palette called the Hubble palette, so we all kind of recognise what the different colours are. So typically in images, um, the reds and pinks are, um, they can be hydrogen, sometimes a different shade, it can be uh, neon as well. Um, if uh, you have something like oxygen, sometimes a green or blue, so you can change them a little bit, but they're just strictly speaking trying to keep it to the same palette, so we all understand. Okay, I'm with you now. So how do we get from these sort of beautiful clouds of dust of atoms to what we know today as our solar system, our sun, planets rotating around the sun? So we rewind the clock back to, you know, where do we go from? Something has to trigger the collapse of the gas. One uh, cause often is a supernova explosion from another star nearby, which triggers the collapse of the gas. Gravity pulls in clumps of gas together, and that starts to swirl and heat up. And it's a bit like when you have, you take one of those clumps, it's a bit like when you take an ice skater uh, spinning, got their arms open, and then when they bring their arms in, they spin faster. So when you get that, what you're getting is squeezing and squeezing of gases, a dense gas in the middle, uh, and it gets hotter and hotter. So eventually, uh, after a few million years, you can get uh, the star ignites, so to speak. It starts getting to a temperature where it can fuse hydrogen into helium and start the process of a new star. But around it, you'll get uh, a dusty donut around it. So all the heavier elements are starting to clump together into the planets. Now that we have our star, the rest of our solar system can begin to take shape. And weirdly enough, what happens next in our story of the solar system is incredibly similar to when you combine water, washing up liquid and pepper. Join Brendan and I in our experiment. I'll give you a couple of seconds to get everything together. Okay? You got it? Ready? Let's go. What we're going to try and do is we're trying to recreate the formation of planets in our solar system. So to try and recreate this, we're going to use some very easily accessible kitchen materials. Uh, i got washing up liquid, uh, we've got some pepper, and i got a shallow bowl of water. The first thing I'm going to have to do to recreate that idea of the gas collapsing and everything swirling around, it's going to have to swirl the water first of all. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to swirl this around just to get everything going. And then we're going to add in uh, our planet pieces, so our little dust pieces. And we'll sprinkle that in uh, around the area. Our planet pieces are the pepper. And the grains by themselves are quite small, but we can see that they're actually clumping together to form the early planets. How would that happen in, in real life? How would they start to accrete together? This is one of the best bits about this demonstration is they actually do clump together. Before gravity can take over, before they're big enough to have enough gravitational pull to pull in material, they actually do stick 
they're smashing against each other. Everything is quite hot at this time as well. So things are far more malleable uh, than we think of them today as in rock. So things, more things are molten. So they do stick together and you end up uh, with a few what we call planetesimals. So really the, the seeds of the planets that we have today. So there's another step then as well. Uh, we've gotten swirling around. We've ended up with quite a few planetesimals. Uh, we have, we have. I was going to say there's at least 20 or 30 in there. And, and this is actually, it's pr- pretty good because before everything settles down into the solar system we're familiar with today, there's a lot of material flying around and smashing into each other. But before all of this can happen, before you can have what we call Great Bombardment era, there's a bit of a clear-up job that's performed by our early star, the Sun. It's what we call a T-Towery star, and it's a young star that's actually got very powerful stellar winds. Every now and again, we'll get um, what we call solar storms, uh, the gas from the sun material being ripped off, these explosions that come towards the Earth and across the solar system. But it was much worse back in uh, the early days of our sun. So what we're going to do is recreate those strong stellar winds by using washing up liquid. And I'm going to put a little bit on my finger. And this is going to change, in the experiments, changing the surface tension of the water. Um, But it's quite magical. I hope you're ready for this. I'm very ready. Okay. Okay. So we're going to have a strong stellar wind from the young star. Pop a bit of washing up liquid on your finger and dip it gently into the middle of the bowl of water and pepper. Did you see it? It's pretty quick, but all the clumps of pepper shoot out right to the edge of the bowl. In our experiment, there wasn't one planetesimal left. But then, how did Earth, Mars and Venus form? It's a little bit exaggerated. It's it's not as catastrophic because in reality, you should be left behind with the biggest piece of the most stable uh, planetesimals, uh, big chunks. Um, But what it's doing in this time, as the planets are forming, these stellar winds are clearing out excess gas and dust. Basically, they're putting a stop to any further formation. When the solar wind pushed out everything, I'm assuming lots of debris also got smashed more into these planetesimals and they grew bigger and bigger. So at what point would they have reached the size we know Earth to be? So um, we reckon, talking about the order of about 100 million years or so before you end up with substantially big chunks that uh, we call it the as uh, the oligarch era so it's a time when actually you've got bigger pieces that are floating around the young stellar winds would have helped uh, as you said combine some more of the smaller objects but once you've got these big oligarchs the big hitters in the solar system then they're still flying around and they then take over to sort of finalize the last stages of forming the planets so it's in times like this when you have collisions like um the ones that formed the moon so yeah, things things have settled down. Uh, so tackling the the, the the strong stellar winds, that's cleared out the f- sort of more free-floating d- dust and gas and left behind uh, the big hitters that uh, slowly slowed, uh, slowed down and everything cooled down. And we eventually have what we consider our solar system today. We also think that there might have been an extra gas giant in there at some point. Uh, with planets moving around the young sun, uh, if they're in sequence with each other, if you have, say, one orbit of a, uh, an outside planet, uh, it's the same as two orbits of uh, the next planet in. If they align with each other, they give a gravitational kick to the next planet out. So we think we may actually have uh, a lost brother of the solar system flying off there, what we call a rogue planet. 
Is that a bit like a comet? And it, will it come back eventually? I mean, or is it just gone forever? Uh, it may be gone forever, depending on the kick it's got. Uh, we also have about our closest star is uh, four light years away, uh, but that's just in uh, in one direction. So if it went off in another direction, it's going to have a much longer journey to join up with a, a new planet system. There is that idea as well that planets possibly can, can be captured by another star system. So this is really on uh, speculation, the theoretical area of things, um, but there are theories out there that state it's possible. So is there any chance there might be a planet in our solar system that might be from another star? Uh, I think when we come to planets, maybe they're further out, not even planets, I should say dwarf planets, we may have captured something else from a, from another system. So there may be one of those, uh, like Pluto, that, that doesn't belong originally to us, uh, which would be quite, quite amazing. Uh, but it's going to be, I think it'd be quite difficult to find out if that's the case. So what sort of timescales are we talking about from that initial collapse all the way to what we have today? Um, yeah, actually, relatively speaking, um, the early stages uh, are in the order of up to 100 million years in that getting to the sort of the stage where you've got bigger pieces that can start to um, combine together into the source that we've formed today. But everything properly settled down probably about four and a half billion years ago for 4.4 billion years ago so um it's still like that's a that's an incredibly uh incredibly long time ago that we've had that so altogether we're talking about tens to hundreds of millions of years time to actually go through those stages uh getting the the tricky thing is getting the nitty-gritty detail on how things formed uh is is quite difficult when you start off like we did at the start of our journey with one big cosmic soup from an old star but hopefully uh, the latest technology has at least been able to allow us to piece together the timeline uh, better than we ever have done before but that doesn't mean the picture is complete on the sixth floor of imperial college's department of space and atmospheric physics there is one exciting bit of building work going on Helen O'Brien is building a part of the Solar Orbiter, a spacecraft set to launch in 2018 after seven years of hard graft. The exciting thing about this particular probe is that it's going to get closer to the sun than we've ever been before. (laughs) Hi, it's Helen O'Brien here. Helen is the lead engineer when it comes to building the sensor that measures the sun's magnetism. Solar Orbiter is one of the European Space Agency's missions, part of their Cosmic Visions programme. It's going to fly closer to the sun than any spacecraft has ever gone before, and it's going to have a wonderful suite of instruments which will both look at the sun's surface through lots of telescopes in all different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum, so visible light, uh, ultraviolet light, x-rays, that kind of thing. And then it's got a range of in situ instruments that will measure the solar wind, so the particles that stream off the sun all the time and are massively influenced by what's going on on the sun's surface. And we will actually measure those properties really close into the sun. So we will be able to work out how things on the surface develop through space and how they influence space weather, as it's called, or what we actually see moving through space and coming off the sun all the time. And we can't do that here on Earth, then? We can't do that here on Earth. So on Earth, we're one astronomical unit away from the sun. Um, and by the time the solar wind, this is the particles that stream off the sun, get to us, they're kind of jumbled up. We've got fast wind and slow wind, and they've mixed up together. And it's actually really difficult to then translate what we see here back to what's going on on the surface. The sun rotates as well, so that adds an extra complication. 
Um, so if we get in really close, we're going to go to 0.28 AU. So that's 28% of the sun-Earth difference. It's just inside the orbit of Mercury. Then we actually get the new solar wind, and we can really trace back then what's going on where we are, where the spacecraft is, with what we see on the surface. How on earth do you build something that's going to be that close to the sun? Because it's got to be, I mean, the solar wind is one thing, but the radiation coming off that has got to be another. So building these instruments must be quite a challenge. It is. There's a whole lot of challenges. And I think one of the main things for Solar Orbiter is dealing with the heat because you're just that close to the sun. And mostly we rely on good spacecraft design. So the spacecraft has going to have it's going to be sun pointing all the time and it basically has a huge heat shield so a huge umbrella that it puts on the front of the spacecraft to protect it from the heat so essentially we'll have the hot face which looks at the sun which has got on the very front surface um, a material that's very resistant to heat which is actually made up of ground animal bones it's called solar black and of all the inventions that man have come up with the best heat resistant material is actually animal bone so it's basically carbon that is put on the front so kind of counterintuitively the surface is black when you would have thought it should be shiny to reflect heat but we just don't have reflective materials that can deal with being that close to the sun so we've got a black surface on the front it's amazing to think that, you know, all these technical revolutions, and I'm looking around your lab here, and it's full of an amazing array of equipment, yet we're still going back to things like ground-up animal bones to, to do the work for us. It is. It's one of the wonderful things, though, I think, about this, that however much work we do and how much research we do, there's actually a lot to be discovered just in the natural world. And, and this is one of the reasons why we want to go and study the sun, because the sun can tell us so much about the universe and the development of, of the space that we live in. And what Helen really wants to know about is the sun's magnetic field. But what is that? And why is she so keen to measure it? So magnetic fields are really hard to explain and they're quite abstract concepts. So here on Earth, we've got a magnetic field generated by the movement of the Earth's core, which is full of iron, basically molten iron, moves around, generates a field. Um, We've got a North Pole and a South Pole. And Uh, if you look at what we call field lines which give us structure then it's the dipole that you might remember from school so the field lines come out of the north pole bend around and come back in at the south pole Um, now the area around the earth is completely is is dominated by our own magnetic field and we call this the, the magnetosphere of the earth however the sun also generates a magnetic field which is actually much more complicated it goes through a cycle over 11 years um, and when it goes into what's known as a solar minimum it has a kind of dipolar structure one north pole one south pole and the field lines look very much like they do on the earth but it then goes through this 11 year cycle where it moves up to what's called a solar maximum and then the field is much more complicated there's lots of local north and south poles all over the surface of the sun and lots of loops of field coming out and then basically the field calms down again Uh, to another solar minimum and at that point the field has flipped so north has become south and south has become north and that will be 11 years later now the earth's field is not quite so dynamic so we basically have one north pole and one south pole and we've had that for many thousands of years however there have been periods in the earth's history where it's also flipped Um, and so what was north is south and what was south is north and it's generated by the iron inside the 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 earth's core or it's generated by the core of the sun Um, and actually how the magnetic field develops in as it moves out through space tells us a lot about how energy is redistributed and one of the great mysteries of the sun is why the atmosphere of the sun which is called the corona 
which is what we see when we get a solar eclipse, um, is actually hotter than the surface of the sun. So that's a really counterintuitive thing. You would expect the surface of the sun to be hot, and as you move further away, it to, to be cooler. Um, but that's actually not the case. And we think that the reason for this is, is through magnetic energy heating the corona. So if we try and understand this magnetic field, which is really quite complicated, but if we try and understand it, then it really will tell us more about how energy is transmitted from the, the, the core of the sun out to the, the atmosphere or the corona and then out through space. So tell me a little bit about your instrument. What are you working on? So we're building the magnetometer, so it measures the magnetic field. And we actually put our sensor out on a long boom away from the spacecraft because everything on the spacecraft will generate magnetic fields. If you've got any kind of currents flowing, any kind of magnetic materials, they all generate magnetic fields. And the fields that we want to measure are actually really tiny. Um, So the unit of magnetic field is the Tesla The Tesla is one of those crazy units, which is actually really, really big. So there's very few things that have a field or generate a field of one Tesla. So we deal on the surface of the Earth with micro Tesla. So that's 10 to the minus 6 Tesla. Um, And it's about 60 micro Tesla on the Earth's surface. We want to go down to fields of 10, 20 nano Tesla. So really, really tiny, 10 to the minus 9 Tesla. Um, And so the real challenge for us is trying to measure those fields um, accurately uh, and also to remove any contamination we get from the spacecraft. Why do you want to measure such small fields? What is it about them that's really interesting? So the magnetic field is just a fundamental property of the solar wind and it really helps us to, to give order and structure to the solar wind. If you know what the magnetic field is doing, then you know the directions charged particles are moving in, for example. And you can, you can see how the solar wind and, and the energy from the sun develops through space. Um, so it really is a, a kind of like, a, a, like we use the magnetic field on Earth to help us navigate around. The magnetic field in space really helps us navigate the, the solar wind that we're seeing and gives it direction and order, basically. Can we see your instrument and what you've been working on for the last seven years? Is that right? It is, yes. Um, The instrument is actually in pieces at the moment because we've been doing some testing um, and we've thought of some little changes that we want to make to add the electronics. So we've broken it apart um, and that's happening now. But I can show you the sensors and some of the electronics. Wow, okay. So here we have an electronics board, which is actually our lab model. So this is... The same electronics that we're going to fly, but it's it's on a circuit board where it's spaced out. So you can see we've got various probes and we're, we're looking at the signals at the various stages and trying to make sure that we eliminate any kind of background noise so that we can just measure, measure the signal that we want, which tells us about the magnetic field. Here I've got a sensor. So the sensor uh, weighs about 500 grams and actually kind of fits in the palm of your hand. Um, and we've got two cores to measure the field in three directions. And just to describe it, I mean, this looks like a circuit board. It looks like something that might be in my computer at home. That's exactly right. It's a circuit board. I mean, it it is... It's It's even got a VGA cable, or it looks like a VGA cable, to back into the TV. Yeah, the VGA cable is actually our sensor cable. But, um, (laughs) yes, it's a similar thing. I mean... What the, the, the sensor gives us a very tiny signal in, in volts, and what this electronics in front of you does is it extracts the field. So we measure the magnitude of that signal in volts and its phase relative to a drive signal that we put in, and that tells us about the magnitude of the field and the direction. Presumably this would be all be boxed up, because I'm thinking it's a remarkable journey it's got to take in the first place. I mean, just getting off Earth is quite a bumpy ride. 
That's right. And one of the big problems for Solar Orbiter is that it's quite a small spacecraft, but it needs a huge delta V to get all the way into the close to, you know, as close as it needs to go. So it's on a really big rocket, an Atlas V rocket. So the vibration that it experiences in launch is really quite intense. And so, yes, we put these electronics box, we make them as compact as we can. We put them inside a frame and the frame has to have a certain thickness of aluminium because uh, we do get radiation in space. And if you think about a lot of what comes off the sun's charged particles, electrons, um, electrons are what flow in electric circuits. So if you mix up electrons flying in from the sun with what's going on in your circuit, it can disrupt what's going on. So we do have a certain amount of shielding from our box, which is made of aluminium. Um, But we also use electronics components that are specially designed to resist, uh, to be what's called radiation hard. And so to be able to deal with being bombarded with charged particles and still operate as they're supposed to. So you're in the testing phase now and seeing whether it might be able to withstand these sort of vibrations and the radiation things. What's the next step? When's it going to launch? So we are, we are working on what's called our qualification model, which is the model that we build exactly the same as the flight model, but we over-test it. So we put it through horrendous vibration, thermal cycling. So we're really quite horrible to it. And at the same time, we're building our flight model. So we've initiated that now, and some of our boards are in population. Um, and by the end of the year, we hope to deliver our flight model to the prime contractors. So that's the people who are making the spacecraft. So that's Airbus up in Stevenage. And then two years later, in October 2018, it will launch from Cape Canaveral. Are you going to be there? I certainly hope so. That's my intention, yes. Safe travels, Helen. We now know how our sun formed and what it's up to these days. But what about in the end? Professor Andrew Norton again. The sun's about halfway through its life now and deep in the core of the sun, it's busy converting hydrogen into helium through nuclear fusion reactions. Now, in about 5 billion years' time, that's just a round number, the amount of heli- uh, sorry the amount of hydrogen in the core of the sun will mostly have been used up now at that point the sun will expand into what we call a red giant star at that point it will engulf the planet mercury it will engulf the planet venus it probably won't quite engulf the planet earth at that point because the earth's orbit will probably move out a little bit as the sun uh, sort of readjusts but even so that will strip away the earth's atmosphere boil away the oceans and uh, you know make earth completely uninhabitable for life as we know it but at that point when the sun has, has become a red giant it will readjust its internal structure the core will become rather hotter and at that point it will start a new set of nuclear fusion reactions this time converting helium into carbon it's a a nuclear reaction called the triple alpha process so it's called that because uh, an alpha particle is is the nucleus of a helium atom and if you combine together three of those hence triple alpha you get a nucleus of carbon regular carbon that we know on earth here as uh, you know coal or charcoal or something like that so For a few uh, more million years, maybe 100 million years, something like that, the sun will convert helium into carbon. It might also generate a little bit of oxygen in the core as well by adding on another helium nucleus to to the carbon to make oxygen. But at that point, the sun is going to run out of fuel. The outer layers of, of the sun will just drift off 
relatively gently into space over the course of a few 10,000 years, something like that. And what's left behind, the remaining core of the sun, will collapse down into a, a, a dead star, really, a type of object we call a white dwarf. That's what uh, fate has in store for our sun, as I say, in about uh, another five billion years' time, something like that. So we've not got to worry just yet. Though. Well, not just yet, but hopefully we might have uh, found our way to another planet by then and be living somewhere else. Who knows? Hope so. <laughs> White dwarfs, though, is I mean, what are these? Are they just cold balls of what carbon yeah essentially carbon and oxygen i mean uh, a, a star like the sun when it's it shed when it sheds those outer layers that will remove about half its mass but the half of its mass that's left behind in the core will collapse down to something about the size of the earth so if you can imagine half the mass of the sun contained in something about the size of the earth you can probably imagine that's pretty dense it's time for me to impress you andrew with my fact because I read that when it gets to this white dwarf stage, apparently one teaspoon of that stuff is the same as one tonne. It would weigh one tonne. That that sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, it really is going to be very dense indeed. And that's what these white dwarfs are. They're, they're super dense objects held up by uh, something that's called electron degeneracy pressure, which is a, a neat feature of uh, quantum mechanics when you try to force uh, atoms very close together. This this pressure develops, which, which holds them up and stops them collapsing any further and that's that's what will happen to our sun when it becomes a white dwarf it will be this really dense ball of essentially carbon and oxygen uh, and it will when it's formed it will be very hot because it's formed from the core of the sun so it will initially be at temperatures of millions or at least hundreds of thousands of uh, degrees and then over the course of billions of years it will just cool and fade away, uh, ultimately becoming something we'd call a black dwarf uh, when it's no longer radiating any energy or heat. What about stars that are bigger than our sun? Because I understand actually our sun is it's not, I mean, it may seem very big given that a million Earths would fit into it, but it's actually not very big if we look at other stars around us. That's right. So anything up to about eight or ten times the mass of the sun will go through pretty much the same sort of life cycle that I've previously described, ending up as this this carbon-oxygen-rich white dwarf. But if you've got a star that's, say, more than ten times the mass of the sun, because it's more massive, its core is hotter, and so after it's converted the helium into carbon and oxygen, it can start undergoing further nuclear fusion reactions to make yet heavier and heavier elements. So it can build up various elements through the periodic table until you get a core of that star that's composed of atoms around about iron in the periodic table. Atoms like cobalt and nickel and iron, they all sit at a particular part of the periodic table. And the thing is that when you're doing nuclear fusion inside a star, as you build up towards iron, you get more energy out than you put in. And that's good. That means the star can continue burning. But to go beyond iron to create yet heavier elements, you have to put in more energy than you get out. And that's not a, a kind of viable way of life for a star. So when the core of one of these massive stars is uh, composed principally of iron, it really has run out of fuel. And at that point, the, the outer layers will fall in very rapidly, hit this sort of incompressible core bounce out again and that's what we call a supernova explosion when all of this outer material in, in the star is thrown out into space in a hugely energetic explosion 
and the core of the star that's left behind, this iron core, is now so dense that it, it collapses in on itself to become what we call a neutron star. And that really is essentially just a ball of neutrons. Where the heck have all the protons and electrons gone? Ah, that's a good question. So essentially what happens is that because of the high densities, the high pressures there, the electrons and protons get forced together. And if you combine an electron with a proton, then you get a neutron. Hmm, pretty cool. Often people talk about black holes, though, when stars die. So how how does that happen? Well... We don't really know, it's fair to say, but just as there's an upper limit for the mass of a white dwarf, there must be an upper limit to the mass of a neutron star. It's the so-called Oppenheimer-Volkoff limit. The trouble is, nobody knows exactly what that upper limit mass is. But if you've got a core of a star remaining, then even the so-called neutron degeneracy pressure that holds up a neutron star, even that is overcome. And then the material will collapse further still and there's nothing that can hold up a stellar core that's that's that dense and so at that point it will presumably collapse into this object that we call a black hole which is is uh, you know as dense as we can get an infinitely dense object uh, left behind but it's not all over just yet because these massive explosions the supernovae cause new stars to form which brings us back to this Something has to trigger the collapse of the gas. One uh, cause often is a supernova explosion from another star nearby, which triggers the collapse of the gas. Gravity pulls in clumps of gas together and that starts... And this happens thousands of times over. So I suggest to truly understand the nature of a star, you should listen to this podcast on repeat. It would also do wonders for my ratings. That nearly wraps things up, but one last thing. The lesson I learned from today's podcast. Never apologise for burning too brightly or for collapsing in on yourself and staying in on a Friday night with more Indian food than you should ever eat. I mean, it's just the way of the galaxy, right? A huge thank you to my wonderful guests, Andrew Norton, Brendan Owens and Helen O'Brien. The rather brilliant theme tune was composed by the one and only Anthony Baggett. I'll be back next month, as always, and hopefully on time too. I've been Greer Jackson, and thank you very much for listening.